So today we're going to be in week five of our series, The Return of the King, talking about Earth's best days. And if you want to turn in your Bibles or whatever electronics you use to read God's Word, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 19 and going a little bit into chapter 20. Now in the last message a couple weeks ago, we talked about the best years of our lives and how Jesus' return will dwarf those memories. God's word says that the best days in your life are actually in your future. Most of us, if you've lived on this earth for any length of time, we look back to a, a time in the past and said, man, those were the best days of my life. Well, if you are a Christian, your best days are still yet to come. And two weeks ago, we looked at what the Bible has to say about some of the worst days for the people of the planet earth. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period will be days of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. But after those days are through comes the return of our king and a thousand year period of his reign on the earth. And those are going to be really, really, really good days. And the Bible goes into great detail about them in Revelation 19 and 20. And as we get into them, I'm just going to say a simple prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart. Change my life. Change the orientation of my thinking about what a good life is. And let us see that the best years of our lives and our existence are yet to come. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now a friend of mine is a huge Disney fan back when they still made mostly family-friendly movies. He would take his kids to every movie that would come out. And it's when they, you know, they would remake, they would re-show Mickey Mouse or, or show um, 101 Dalmatians or, or something like that. And the children, they were still really young, and he wanted to kind of introduce them to Disney, and it was one of his favorite things. And the kids, you know, they were only four or five, years old when he's taking these, them to these movies and they would get scared when the villain was introduced and and they didn't want to go because they said they'd be so scared of the villain that they'd want to leave the theater and so whenever they were headed for the theater to see a new movie he and his wife would have a talk with them and said okay now there's going to be this really scary time in the movie and it's going to make you feel a little frightened, but if you stick it out, if you just wait until the end, it's, you're going to be glad you waited because it's going to be so fantastic and you're going to be really glad that you stuck around until the end. And in some ways, there's that little kid in each one of us. And God knows that the darker the earth gets, that the more the culture turns against Christianity and against the church, that we're going to need some reassurance. And we're going to need some reassurance, especially as we come to the end of this cosmic drama that's coming soon. So God was careful to tell us that our world is going to have bad times coming. But good will really triumph in the end. And the triumphant part is what we're going to be talking about today in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we had our last message, we learned that for three and a half years, the unholy trinity of the dragon, the, which is representing the Antichrist, and the false prophet, 
which is representing um, or, God, or Satan's uh, mocking of the Holy Spirit, will have a significant influence on the events of the world. And this diabolical trio, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, they're going to do everything they can to deceive as many people as they can. They're going to persecute to the death Christians and Jews. They're going to control even the world's banking system that you won't be able to buy or sell unless you take their mark and worship the image of the beast. This terrible time will culminate in an ultimate battle where the Euphrates River will dry up. The Euphrates River has always been that natural um, blocking force against the armies from the east coming west and conquering the world from from the, the countries of the east like China. You have this gigantic river you have to cross and it would be virtually impossible even with um, modern equipment. But that is going to dry up, allowing those armies to come all the way to the Valley of Armageddon in northern Israel. And literally, and this isn't a curse, but all hell will break loose at that time. Everyone will come together into that valley to fight as a Messiah returns and slays the, but then he slays his enemies with the words that come out of his mouth. Let me read it. Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, There was a great white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he may strike the nations with it. He will rule the nations with an iron rod, and he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now when I read the Bible, or really any other book, I kind of like to visualize what's going on. I don't just read the words and say, okay, that's what happened. I actually like to, to visualize them. And this reminded me, especially um, back in 1990, 1991 of the Gulf War, when we for, one of, for the first time we actually had news 24 hours news at, at the scene of a war going on. And you remember Wolf Blitzer during that time? If you're old enough to remember back to, to uh, the Gulf War, Wolf Blitzer just talking into a microphone saying that the armies are doing this and there's rockets flying over my head and the Patriot missile systems are, are, are intercepting them and, and the Scud missiles are coming in and all this kind of stuff. And I just imagine that this is going on at the time. I'm probably way off track, but I just imagine that reporters standing on Mount Carmel, which would be the highest point there, are looking down into this valley talking about this when all of a sudden, I don't know if that's what it will sound like, but the trumpet blast will happen. And Jesus will descend and end this battle in a way that no reporter could ever have imagined. Verse 19 explains it. He says, When I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet, who had performed miraculous signs in its presence. 
And both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. This whole army that arrays itself against Jesus never, ever stood a chance. After all the speeches, after all the blasphemy, after all the persecutions of Christians, after forcing every single person on earth to take a mark on their hand or forehead and worship him or face the guillotines, it's all over. The reign of the Antichrist is done. This is the day of Christ's return. This is when he comes back as the conquering hero. And that in itself is an awesome thing. Just imagine all the bad, all the evil on earth is totally going to be wiped out at that time when he annihilates his enemies. But there's another bunch of things that happen. So let me give you that list. The first thing that happens that we see here in Revelation is that the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. You remember, from a few weeks ago, the Antichrist is the beast from the sea and the false prophet is the beast from the land. Those are all um, typologies within the book of Revelation of, of actual people that will come during the last days. <coughs> now the lake of fire is, is hell. That is the eternal hell. You see, right now, the spirits of those who died in the Lord are before, um, exist in heaven in a spiritual form. So when we say that it's to be, you know, funerals, and when we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, we have to remember that even though we are in these bodies right now, we are actually a spiritual creature. And those spirits are standing before the Lord right now. So they are in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And similarly, there is a place for those who have rejected God called Hades. This is where the spirit of the dead who died apart from Christ are kept until the white throne judgment, where they will all be cast in to this permanent hell. Now the place that it refers to, the word that Jesus always used, is a place called Gehenna. Gehenna at that time was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Now, they just didn't just dump their garbage in there. They had people tending this thing and as a perpetual fire. So they would, it would just be like their big garbage pit where they burned everything. And anyone who didn't have money for a proper funeral, they'd just throw them in there. And they would be, they would, uh, be burned to a crisp. And so that, this place was considered to be accursed because the reason they picked that place was because a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, the kings of Judah sacrificed children there in, to worship Baal, Asherah, and Moloch, or the, the Canaanite gods. It was part of their worship to offer children as physical child sacrifices to this god. Well, that sin disgusted the Jewish people so badly, they turned the place of worship to these Canaanite quote-unquote gods, into a stinking, flaming pile of garbage. So this is a picture that Jesus always uses to describe hell. 
Now the Antichrist and false prophet will be the first ones to enter Gehenna, to enter hell. And it's a lake of fire that constantly burns but does not consume you completely. Or the people that are there, hopefully not you. Hopefully you've given your heart to Christ. Now, hell is this eternal place where the, there is no manifest presence of God. He said, well, God exists anywhere. Well, he can exist anywhere without you feeling him. He can exist and be there, but he won't be there in a way that you will be able to feel or understand. And I know hell is not a popular subject today, but you know what the subject that Jesus spoke most often of to the crowds? Hell. Because he doesn't want anyone to go there. In fact, hell is usually the um, subject the skeptics will try to trip a Christian up with. Anybody ever heard, how can a God of love send a person to hell? You ever heard that? Well, my answer to that is that he doesn't. If you end up in hell, it's because you've chosen it for yourself. You know, God is not a rapist. He is not a kidnapper. He is not somebody who forces you to do anything. In fact, you could say God lovingly honors your choice and allows that choice to shape your eternal destiny for yourself. Now, if you've surrendered your heart to Jesus, you've made him Lord and Savior of your life, your faithful, godly service to him will guarantee you heaven, and not only just entering into heaven, but a rich reward in heaven. We'll talk about that in a moment. But if, however, if you ignore God, if you shun God, if you mock God, and otherwise live your life apart from God, he will lovingly honor your decision into eternity. So that's my answer to the question of how can a God of love send people to hell is simply that God honors your choice. Choose wisely. Also, for those who follow God, the removal of wicked people from this earth is a reward for those who have followed him. I mean, why would God want to create a heaven on earth and have evil people there. The same people that persecuted you, that killed you, that, that um, lied to you, that bullied you. He wants a world restored where there's no more war, no more lies, no more deceit, no more bullying, no more crime, no more terrorism. He wants, he said, I have made all things new. He wants to rid the world of that, and part of that will be taking away the people that do these awful things. The second thing he's going to do is destroy the armies of the Antichrist. Remember, these are people who have made their decision. These are people who have taken the mark. These are people who have worshipped the Antichrist. The Bible is very clear. If you take the mark, you are doomed. But you know what? Jesus won't have to lift a finger to take out this army. He simply speaks the word. Just as God spoke the world into existence, Jesus speaks the word, and these armies fall down dead. The rest were killed with the sword that came out of his mouth, as the rider of the horse, and all the birds ate the fill of their flesh. That's a pretty gruesome scene, but that is exactly what is going to happen. God's avian cleanup crew is going to clear the battlefield. 
Now, chapter 20 opens up with the demise of Satan. John says, Therefore I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, we've heard of the abyss before. If you've read the Gospels, you remember in Luke chapter 8, Jesus cast demons out of a man on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And the demons begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Now, theologians will tell you that the abyss is a limitless pit where it feels like you are perpetually falling forever, but never hitting the ground. But what we see here is that Satan will be bound and cast into this abyss. In verse 2, it says that he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And I was thinking about this. I'm kind of a practical person, and I'm thinking a bottomless pit where he could throw for, or fall for a thousand years. Where is there a place where you could fall for a thousand years? I mean, even if he fell a centimeter a second, he would, he would hit bottom within a couple of years anywhere around here. And then it occurred to me, God has made a really big galaxy. I looked it up, and this is, just shows you how much of a nerd your pastor is. You know, God could just chuck Satan into the area between the galaxies where there are 2.5 million light years of nothingness. He could throw him at light speed into this area. It's called dark space. It means there's totally dark. There's no light, no air, no matter at all exists in dark space. Just an endless free fall floating alone in nothingness. But then comes the good part. Jesus turns his attention from dealing with the bad guys to rewarding the good guys. So starting that day, the martyrs and believers will reign with Christ. Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and people seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of them who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. There is a principle in Scripture that is absolute. I have seen it throughout my life. I have seen it throughout the life of everyone I've known in, in Christ. Is that God always returns more to us than we give to Him. If you think about it, our very salvation is amazing grace. He has given us so much in that He gave us His one and only Son, to a bunch of rebels, who, people who shook their fist at God for part of their life. And, and still he gave his one and only son. He bankrupted heaven for us. So that principle that God always returns more to us than we give to him is seen just in salvation. However, those who give in their lives for his cause, those who serve in their church, those who live their lives for Jesus, will receive thrones to reign on in heaven. Isn't that amazing? And you may be thinking, well, what am I going to be reigning over? I mean, there's only so much stuff here on earth you can reign over. I mean, what if I only do kind of a haphazard job? I get to be chief dog catcher of a city or something? I mean, you know, what kind of reigning are we talking about here? 
Well, I don't think so. I think our God is actually really extravagant when he rewards people. Using the example of the galaxies, and again, this is John's opinion. This is not me, thus saith the Lord. This is just me imagining, okay? But you know that there have been about 108 billion people who have lived so far on this earth. Conservatively, or let's just say even half of them, I think it's probably 15% maybe, but we'll just say half of them are saved and going to heaven. So that's what, 54 million people, billion people. Scientists conservatively estimate there are 200 billion galaxies out there. 200 billion. Maybe you're going to have a galaxy or two to rule over. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's a big universe that God could, could get. He, he could have Andromeda and Pegasus galaxies set aside for you that you're going to reign and rule over for him. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, if you put this into perspective, you say, well, I'm not going to reign and rule on this earth. By the time he was 30, Alexander the Great conquered the entire known world. The Roman philosopher Plutarch records that when Alexander the Great was shown a map, they saw his vast kingdom and everything that he had conquered and ruled, he, he wept because there was no more worlds for him to conquer. You know, friends, if you've trusted in Christ, I think you're going to have and inherit and reign over an area that would make Alexander's kingdom look like a grain of sand on every beach in this world. Our God is an awesome God, and he richly rewards those who follow him. Again, it's not necessarily biblical. I can't say this is in 3 Corinthians or something or anything, but I think, I'm just saying our God is an extravagant God. And when he says he's going to give you a reward to reign and rule, he really means it. Those of us who are faithful and follow him and resist in worshiping the beast will also reign with him. And even though I don't think that most of us will be on the earth when the Antichrist comes to true power, I believe we'll go in the rapture, you can still worship the beast now, that spirit of Antichrist that's coming into the world by, try, by be, trying to be more worldly than godly in your life. Look at the rest of this verse. It says that those people came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, a thousand years, that word is Latin, is, uh, in Latin is millennium. So Christians call this final thousand years on the planet Earth a millennium. And it's this incredible time that we're going to go into. The Bible says that those who are in Christ came, and reign, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are completed. And then he adds, this is the first resurrection. Now, there's two resurrections at the end of time. The first is a resurrection of the righteous at the rapture when the saints who exist in spirit form get their eternal bodies. So they're going to be like Jesus in having that eternal body where soul and spirit, or soul and, spirit and body come back together. The second resurrection is a resurrection of the unrighteous into eternal damnation. And that will take place at the end of the thousand-year millennium. 
Verse 6 says, blessed, are the, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with them for a thousand years. Remember I said we have that bad thing that we're about to go into? Well, this is the best thing that we get to look forward to now. That's our future. Jesus returns with lightning and thunder and a trumpet and an earthquake. The earthquake splits the earth so that Jerusalem is lifted up and the land about it has changed. You see this prophesied in Zechariah 14, verse 8. It says, On that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. On that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and in and his name alone. All the land south of Jerusalem will be changed into a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site. People will live there and never again will be a curse of complete destruction. So Jerusalem will dwell in security. So that next action after Christ's return is that Jerusalem will rise in elevation. Right now, the holy city sits on top of a mountain, essentially. That mountain is only 2,700 feet, though. So if you've ever been to the Rockies, 2,700 feet is like a foothill. It's not that impressive. But at the return of Christ, it will be elevated even more. I think it will be like a throne for the Lord Jesus. A thousand years, when he takes over that throne, he will be king. He will rule over us like no earthly ruler ever has, with justice, with love. And no hidden agenda. You won't have to worry about mean tweets or, all, or the president possibly having dementia. You won't have to worry about all this politics and, and scheming and lies and deceptions. Jesus will be king. The saints who participated in the first resurrection will all be there. We'll have resurrected bodies. We can go down to fellowship meals and eat all we want and not gain a single pound. Somebody say Hallelujah. Just like after his resurrection, just like Jesus was able to eat, we'll be able to eat. We'll be able to walk through a wall. We'll be able to, to instantly transport to large distances in different times. You say, how can I rule over a galaxy? It's easy when I can go, I wonder what the weather is like on Acacia, Planitia, and Mars right now. Bloop, I'm there. Not that hard, right? In other words, the conditions we, we saw only briefly in the Garden of Eden will be our new reality. In fact, here is a reality that existed in the Garden of Eden that will exist at that time. Isaiah 11 talks about it. It says that the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fatted calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. The infant will play beside a cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Shane, I have some bad news. I don't think there's hunting. 
in the eternal kingdom. I'm sorry, brother. It, 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 it hurts me to say that. Shed hunting, maybe. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really thinking this Christianity thing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> There's more about this. If you want to write, read a little bit or more about it, I won't read the, the longer section here, but it's in Isaiah 65. A lot more about what this eternal kingdom will be like. In other words, you're going to have a job, but your work will be meaningful. Anybody ever go to work on Monday morning saying, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go? Yeah, but it won't be that way. You'll be looking forward to going to work because your work will be meaningful. It'll be an act of worship to Jesus on the throne. And this is going to last for 10 centuries. And during this millennium, we'll get to experience what it's like to have a righteous government, finally, because Jesus will be the governor. Isaiah 9 says this, that the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Then after that thousand years, God does something I don't get. I, I, I have to be honest with you, I don't understand this when I read it in Revelation. I think maybe because God's love is so vast that he gives Satan one last chance. In Revelation 20, verse 7, it says, When a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Goes right back to his old tricks. He'll go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for a battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. So what we'll see at the end of the millennium is apparently there'll be a lot of people alive who are not true believers, who never truly surrendered to Christ. They'll go through the motions, they'll go through all the requirements, but their hearts are not really for God. And it says that they come up across the breadth of the earth and surround the encampment of the saints in Jerusalem, the beloved city. And the millennium ends with a rebellion by all non-believers led by Satan once again. And you would think, after spending a thousand years floating around in space, he would have learned his lesson? Nope. The Bible says it's fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the last thing that will happen before the new heavens and the new earth is that Satan himself will join the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist in that lake of fire. Then, the Bible, then comes what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. And you see it in, even in the Gospels about when Jesus says that God someday will separate the sheep, his followers, from the goats, those who rebel against him. That will be a very somber moment. But immediately following that will be the new creation. And we're going to learn more about that next week. So I encourage you to come back and, and listen to the final message during this season. Because that's going to become our eternal home. Let's all rise. The Bible says that blessed are holy and holy are all those who share in the first resurrection. So, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you help us to look forward to that.
Help us to look forward when all these aches and pains, struggling with, with weight or illness, dealing with unfair bosses, stress, and all the, the evil in this world will all come to an end. We'll have a full set of teeth, a full head of hair, the ability to run miles, and not only just the, the lack of physical ailments, but a kingdom to rule over that you will gladly give to us. So, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you help encourage us during these dark times to look forward to the promises you have made us because they will as surely come to pass as anything else written in the Bible. Father, I just bless your people now. Lord, if there be anyone here who is still hesitant about following Christ, who still does, has not surrendered, I ask, Father, that you give them the grace right now to do just that, to totally and completely surrender, to say, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my God, you're my Savior, and you're my King. Forgive me for my sins and let me follow you now for the rest of my days.